Hi, everybody. Welcome to class two. This class is called What's My ACE Score and How to Start Healing. Everybody always wants to know their ACE score if they don't know it already. And there's some really good news around that information. So you are in module two, the intermediate module of trauma-informed care and resilience. We call it TICKER certification program. This is class two, and it's called What's My A Score? How to Start Healing. So the class objectives here are, you are not your A score. Please say it to yourself over and over again. You are not your A score. Aces happen to people. Adverse childhood experiences, bad things happen to people. We're going to talk about the Aces Initiative in California. We're going to go over how the ACE screening tool works and how the adult resilience survey works. We're going to talk about how to start healing and the podcast from delusional optimism for this particular class is called an overview of ACEs, all we've learned so far, part one. So that just reinforces this information. All right, with that, let's get started. Okay, so... You may know this person, Dr. Nadine Burke Harris. She heads up the ACEs Aware Initiative in California. So let me share with you how the ACEs Aware Initiative or the ACEs Aware Initiative got started. In January 2019, California committed money funding to reducing adverse childhood experiences by 50% in the course of one generation. That's a pretty phenomenal commitment to reducing trauma in the lives of Californians. So Governor Newsom appointed Dr. Nadine Burke Harris in California as the first ever female Surgeon General. So we have the first woo-woo woman Surgeon General and she's also a person of color. So yay for us in California. So Surgeon General Dr. Nadine Burke Harris in partnership with Governor Newsom, the State Department of Health and Healthcare Services and health and community stakeholders leads the system reform that recognizes and responds to the effects that ACEs have on our biological systems, our bodies, and addresses the lifelong impact of adverse childhood experiences. So a key part of this work is the ACEs Aware Initiative. And there's lots of money and targeted, targeted activities happening in California related to this. So very, very cool. The ACEs Aware mission is to change and save lives by helping providers understand the importance of screening for adverse childhood experiences and training providers to respond with trauma-informed care to mitigate the health impact of toxic stress. So we know people experience toxic stress when they experience trauma. We want our medical community, that's who we're talking about when we say providers, our medical communities, our mental health providers, our nurses, people who meet people at the healthcare door to understand how to 
do screenings, but also how to use that information in a meaningful way to mitigate those health impacts of toxic stress. So that's the ACEs Aware mission. And the goal, again, is to reduce ACEs by 50% across one generation. Okay, so what's your score? This is what everybody always wants to talk about is like, what's your A score? What's my A score? And I'm smiling and I shouldn't be smiling because an A score is not something that is necessarily a positive thing. We have to keep it in perspective, use it appropriately, but that comes from understanding the tool and what it means and what it doesn't mean. And so, and how we can use it for growth and change within ourselves. So you're going to, in this class, you're gonna navigate to the course menu after this course is finished, and you're gonna get to participate in two short confidential questionnaires, which will determine both your adult resiliency score and your ACE score, your ACE Adverse Childhood Experiences score. None of the information is retained or shared in any manner. So I'm not gonna see your scores, you're the only one who's going to access that information. And we're going to talk about how to use that information as we finish this particular class. So you're going to get to find out your ACE score and your resiliency score if you don't already know it. So let's start with the positive, the Devereaux Adult Resiliency Survey. I did my dissertation using a Devereaux product on resiliency for infants and toddlers. I happen to love this company and appreciate their work. And they provide this information and survey free to everyone. So this is called the Devereaux Adult Resiliency Survey. And you can see the way it works is this is only one. This is page one of two. And there's a, there's a link in the class to this particular survey. So you'll be able to actually do it yourself. So the way it's organized, though, is through relationships, internal beliefs. That means like what I generally believe about the world. Initiative, how I approach the world or how I go forward in the world and self-control because control is a big part of how we navigate our lives as adults for sure. So let's look at an example. I have good friends that who support me. That would be a, a measure of our relationships. An internal belief would be, I am creative. Yes, I'm a creative human, human being. That's, that's, an, that's an internal belief about myself. Now, an initiative, initiative is really a stage of development and it's, it's about not only it's about being able to be active on the world. It's being able to initiate things and make things happen. So I seek out new knowledge. Yeah, I do seek out new knowledge. And I really do enjoy that. Or I have a hobby that I engage in. Okay. I'm not great about having a hobby. So that would be something that I would mark over on the other side. Almost always, sometimes not yet. So I might mark not yet, or sometimes because right off the top of my head, I can't think of my hobby other than seeking out new knowledge. <laughs> so anyway, self-control is about, I express my emotions. 
Or maybe I don't express my emotions and I say not yet because that's scary because of my experience earlier in life. I am flexible. Okay. Can you, can you shift gears when things change? That's a, that's a sign of under the category of self-control. You can see how this survey is organized. It's not going to demonstrate exactly what you need to do with your life from here on out once you have completed this survey. It's really an insight provider. It helps us to look into ourselves and things about about how we explore the world and how we relate to the world. So the Devereaux Adult Resiliency Survey is not going to say, give you a diagnosis in any way. What it does do is provide insight into ourselves so we know places that we can grow and change and move forward, which in and of itself is a definition of resiliency. Then we also have the ACEs Aware questionnaire. And this one is an adult identified questionnaire and it's in English. This is a super simple process. You can see the little checkbox to the right of the screen. And there are 10 questions. And you either check it yes or you leave it blank and it's no. Then you count up the number of checks and that is a person's A score. So, for example, did you lose a parent through divorce, abandonment, death, or other reason? Check mark. Yes. One. Okay. So that's one for me. So you can see we're going to go down this whole list and people are either going to have zero to 10 as their A score. Okay, so you can see that there's 10 questions here. And as you respond, yes, they are, they did happen to me before the age of 18, or they didn't happen to me before the age of 18. Maybe something happened to you after the age of 18. It doesn't get counted on the adverse childhood experience questionnaire because the questionnaire is for birth to 18 doesn't mean that it wasn't important, harmful, traumatic, or need attention, just means that it doesn't fall into the category of an ACE. So last but not least, do you believe that the experiences have affected your health? So, and that's a perspective thing. Yeah, not so much, or yeah, some it has, or it's affected my health a lot. Okay, so this is the ACEs screening tool. And previously, we looked at the resilience survey. Resilience is the ability to overcome adversity, the ability to overcome ACEs. And the ACEs are the traumas that happen before the age of 18. That's how they work. And they work nicely together. One of the ways that the ACE screening gets completed is often in a doctor's office or in a medical provider's office. So it could be a mental health provider or a medical doctor or a hospital or somewhere in in the medical community. But it can also be presented at a lot of different kinds of organizations that provide services to people. So what we need One of the, this is called the pearls and the pearls is when we ask a parent to complete or a caregiver to complete the ACEs screening for a child. Okay. So are you getting that? 
the Pediatric ACEs and Related Life Events Screener is called the PEARLS, and it's completed by a caregiver or parent for the child. Has this child experienced a parent or caregiver who went to prison or jail? Yes or no? Okay, so that's completed by a caregiver, particularly when a child is too young to respond for themselves. An infant. Now, this does create some complications, and, and we'll talk about those as we move forward a little bit, but it's important to, to realize that we have different screenings, even though they're the exact same questions for pediatrics versus current adult, current adults. Okay, then we have the teen pearls. And that is where a teenager, it's for a teenager, but it's completed again by a caregiver or a parent. All right, in this situation, you can actually ask the teen, the adolescent and the parent to both complete the screening. Now I had this happen, I have a very good friend who's a pediatrician and he's getting very informed and using the ACEs screening in his practice a lot now. And one day he called kind of in a panic and he said, oh my gosh, I don't, I don't know what to do because I was doing the ACEs screening and I gave one ACEs screening to the 13 year old, one to the 14 year old and two to the parent, one for each of them. And the kids both said, their, their ACE screenings came back separately, but both had their own score and they were above four. And the parents' ACE screening for both adolescents came back and the scores were zero. So what do you do with what do you do with that? So it can get really complicated for doctors in terms of clinically addressing what's on this screening when you get different information. So, but important note here is we have an adult screening, we have a pediatric screening where a caregiver fills it out for a child. I think it's okay to assist a child in filling it out, meaning ask a young child questions and let them say what they think about it because that builds a relationship and we get more information. And then we have the teen screening. None of the questions change. It's just a process of administration. All right, what happens when you have conflicting scores? This is exactly what happened with my friend who's a pediatrician, and I know that it happens to lots of medical providers and mental health providers, especially who aren't really super familiar with the tool. The other thing that happens is maybe I take an ACEs screening one day, the first time, and then I'm kind of feeling like I don't want to share a lot of information, even with myself. So maybe I under present information and then I take another screening. I do the screening again later down the road and I might come up with a different score. So what happens in both situations are we have to be honest with ourselves about things that happen. All Felidi and Anda are asking is the question, 
Did you experience physical abuse as a child before the age of 18? Yes or no. If you were hit hard enough to leave a mark as a punishment by an adult before the age of 18, one time or a thousand times, the answer to that is one. It's just as simple as that. It doesn't mean that your life is ruined or anything like that. It's just, you're just answering the question. If you had a person in your family who was sent to prison or to jail, the answer is yes. Or to juvenile hall, if you had a sibling who was younger and put in juvenile hall. That has a traumatic impact on a child's life. So when we have conflicting scores, then we have to dig deeper. And I will tell you from the clinical psychologist perspective, we always have to dig deeper. Digging deeper is the work. Really digging deeper, deeper is where the answers and the healing and the understanding all come from. And so we have to dig deeper. This is just the very surface. And I will also share with you that I don't believe that people who don't have a relationship with somebody, a personal relationship with somebody, should tread into the territory of trying to complete an ACEs screening or any kind of screening with another person if you don't have an established relationship with them and know what you want to accomplish with that information specifically related to that particular person. Unless you're doing research and everybody's on board through informed consent. So we have to be very careful when we gather this kind of personal information from people because it's very triggering. And every time you ask a question about a trauma that happens to somebody in their childhood, we potentially activate that trauma again. And we're going to talk about this in the next class or one of the next coming up classes vicarious trauma. We reactivate trauma that's old as if it's happening in the present. And that's not an okay thing to do to people consciously or unconsciously. Okay. So we have a couple of different ways of getting conflicting scores. You can either get a conflicting score from a caregiver and a child or a teen, and that creates, you know, conversations that where we need to dig deeper and find out, okay, who's Who's telling the truth? It's not that cut and dry usually. It's not that black and white because probably both of them think they're telling the truth and both of them have a perspective about what this information is going to be used for. And parents can often be terrified to reveal this information about their child, not only because they maybe feel guilty, but also because they're afraid of what the consequences will bring. And, and, Organizations and businesses and medical practices and hospitals all need to understand that these responses do have consequences. And so how they're going to manage that and share that information with parents is very important when you are up front in administering or providing a screening because we need to be honest with what we're doing with that information. When I was in private practice, one of the things that I always did, if I was confronted with a situation in a family where there was abuse that I need as a mandated reporter that I felt it was necessary to report, was I would buffer my client 
and help them to make the report for themselves. I didn't try to do that. As uncomfortable as it is, it's more honest, it's more genuine, it's more authentic, and it's certainly more, more supportive to say, you know what, I've gotten information here that makes it makes that requires me to make a report of abuse or whatever it is. And I'd really rather do that with you, supporting you through that process, rather than independently and without you. So let's do it together and not leave the person stuck with the fear of, you know, something bad's going to happen. Everything goes better when we tell on ourselves. And generally, if parents are physically abusive towards their children or even emotionally abusive towards their children, I firmly believe that this is true. Parents want what's best for their children. They just don't always know how to get it. And sometimes the way they go about getting what they want their children to do or what they think their children need is emotionally or physically abusive. And until we provide other alternatives, we can't help change that cycle. So that's, that's one of the things that we have to think about when we get conflicting scores is where's the parent coming from? Are they afraid? And then we also have to take into perspective the details from the, the adolescent. There's another place where conflicting scores come into play. Maybe I do an ACE screening when I'm 15, or let's say I do an ACE screening when I'm 12, and then I do an ACE screening when I'm 15, and then I do one when I'm 25, and all three times I come up with a different score. Again, we have to dig deeper. Why? Maybe the trauma didn't happen when I was 12. Maybe it happened when I was 15, and so that is why it hadn't happened yet. Or maybe at 15, I was like, nothing happened to me, blah, blah, blah. And, or everything happened to me and all of them are marked. And now at 25, I have a different perspective about things that happened to me. So you can see how just having the score isn't really helpful if you don't have more of the story from the actual person. And that's really important when understanding trauma and adversity in childhood is understanding the story of that person's life. Okay. With that, we're going to jump into section three here coming up. Okay, welcome to the next section. All right, let's talk about, we're taught, you know, when we talk about ACE scores and adversity, it can be very activating for us emotionally on an unconscious level. And that, what I want to say about that is that there are so many amazing things about humans that protect us from trauma. Now, does that mean that it's okay to just let children experience trauma right and left? Absolutely not. But I also don't want people to succumb to the traumatic experiences they've had as if there's nothing in the environment that buffers or protects them 
from adversity. So this is called protective influences, buffers, and factors. And this is the roots of resilience, really. Individual and environmental characteristics are thought to moderate or buffer the negative effects of stress and result in more positive behavioral and psychological outcomes in at-risk children than would have been possible in their absence. Now that's a long sentence, I get it, but it's so meaningful because what it's saying is that, and this is what people get confused about. You know, I had a whole lot of really bad things happen to me, but I feel like I turned out pretty much okay. That's the buffering influences. Those are the buffering influences and the protective factors that have helped people to overcome adversity. And they happen within people individually and they happen in our environment. Then they happen with other people that we engage with. So you can see this, this, this interaction between these two lovelies and that smiling engagement is a protective influence on that baby's life forever. And the longer that baby has this kind of engagement relationship, the more and more and more protected that baby is going to be from adversity. We can't predict or eliminate all the trauma from everyone's lives. What we can do, though, is prepare by creating buffering relationships for being able to overcome adversity. I can't say this enough. And even though I say it a lot, people still feel like trauma is their fault. But you have to remember, you are not your ACE score. Whether you have an ACE score of 1 or 10, you are not your ACE score. Trauma is something that happens to people, not something that people do or cause or make happen to them. It's not your fault. It's not my fault. People experience trauma and you are not your ACE score. So with that, let's start talking about healing because when people experience trauma, but they haven't had the opportunity to talk about healing, that's where people get stuck in anxiety and depression and potentially recycling old trauma into new traumatic experiences for themselves and for others. So with that, let's talk about healing. Again, you are not your A score. Say it with me. You are not your A score. I am not my A score. However, the A score does correlate to health risks, diabetes, heart attack, stroke, emergency room visits, pharmacy use visits, of just a myriad of things, whether it's in pediatric asthma, um, lots and lots of medical conditions correlate to the ACE score, which means they are a predictor of health risk and mental health risk. So we can't ignore them and we can't just frost them over as if they don't have an important, they don't play an important role in our lives. So A scores are highly correlated with health risks and you are not your A score. So who am I now that I have an A score? You know, now that I know my A score is five, what do I do with that? You know, that's a lot of information. 
it's scary. Not a lot of people have an A score of five. Where, you know, what does this mean about me? It means that you are still you, a person with a story that includes adversity from childhood and a person who's grown up into an adult and is learning more about you and who you are and how to manage the impact of that adversity in adulthood. Remember, our trauma doesn't define who we are. It just teaches us about our story. And we all have our own story. So I think I I love this guy because he reminds me of so many people when they're first learning kind of about ACEs and they think, oh my gosh, I actually have a pretty high ACE score or I don't have an ACE score. But having a high ACE score does not make somebody, does not make you a bad person. Even if your body and brain learn to cope in ways that are not healthy or helpful to you anymore. So sometimes think about it. People who misuse alcohol often start drinking as early as the age of nine, nine years old. That's pretty early to start using alcohol or they start smoking really early or just a myriad of other things that are ways in which people cope with painful things that are happening in their childhood or adolescence. And so coping is actually a really good skill in a way for your body and your brain to keep itself alive. Because remember, the brain's in service of survival. If you're dealing with something that's potentially emotionally threatening your life, to deal with that emotional threat, using alcohol to self-medicate could be a survival skill, which is pretty, like, it's actually pretty cool if you think about it like that. And it's very, very unhealthy way of unfolding. It just is the way it is. But that's, that's sort of how the curly train rolls. It doesn't, it doesn't make sense because we're dealing with the immaturity of a child or an adolescent with trauma and then with quote unquote coping mechanisms that aren't necessarily optimal or healthy. So who, who am I? Who am I if I'm a person who started drinking at the age of nine and smoking at the age of 10 and having all kinds of other things go on in my life? Well, I'm going to learn to tell my story and that's how we heal. So remember the brain wires when the brain fires. So when something happens, it activates the brain, the brain fires and makes a connection. And that's how we learn new things and create neural pathways and understand the world. So let's find out how to rewire for healing. Let's do an activity together. Now, everybody always says Oh, you can heal trauma by breathing or doing yoga or doing meditation or guided imagery or whatever. Mindfulness. And I can totally 100% appreciate all of those ways of healing trauma. However, what I want to say is that those are not going to heal trauma unless they're targeted at healing trauma. So we have to have a practitioner who's supporting us in those modes of healing who understands trauma. 
Because just doing yoga by itself isn't necessarily going to do anything related to trauma other than maybe calm the body during yoga. But what can happen is anxiety, particularly in meditation, I've talked to lots and lots of people who they think, okay, I need to meditate because I've had trauma. Well, then they try to meditate and they can't, it, it exacerbates their anxiety. And then they feel like a complete failure because they can't meditate. And it just perpetuates the, the self-harm around trauma. So what's very, very important is that when we put a healing practice together for ourselves to battle trauma, that we make sure that that healing practice is linked to healing our trauma. So I'll give you an example, and it's very personal for me, but it's also very meaningful for me. So I'm in the field of trauma, and people who work in the field of trauma are activated all the time around trauma. And I'm no different. I get activated by other people's trauma as well as my own past trauma. So I have my own therapist, and my own therapist happens to be a trained hypnotherapist also. So one of the things that I do is I go to my trained hypnotherapist, therapist, therapist, who has an expertise in trauma and does some guided imagery, but really understands the depth and the meaning behind it in order to manage and take care of myself and to continue my healing journey and storytelling. Now that's, that's the way we need to approach understanding trauma as well as healing through these modalities. The modality itself doesn't heal trauma. It's the relationship to the trauma that heals the trauma. All right, let's do a breathing activity together because this in and of itself will help disrupt anxiety in its tracks. So here we go. Breathing in and of itself disrupts our, has the power to disrupt our anxiety or a persistent thought that's aggravating us. And so when we can disrupt our mind and our energy in our body, then we, it's almost like getting a redo. We get a new opportunity. So I'm going to teach you one skill. I use it. Other people use it. It's called 777. I like to call it blackjack because I just do. And it's about, it's just breathing. Take deep breaths in through the nose for seven seconds. Hold it for seven seconds. Release through your mouth for seven until it's all gone. Do it again. Hold it. Release. Every time I do that, it sounds kind of hokey, but I almost I mean, I can feel the oxygen in my brain. I can feel the oxygen in my body. It's like I can feel my body differently after I do that exercise when I commit to it. Sometimes it takes a minute for us to commit to something that's going to disrupt 
our anxiety or our brain when we're running down the road of something's wrong, you know, the fire alarm. So another thing that disrupts anxiety, like in its tracks, just stops anxiety in its tracks is to pick up a glass of water and chug down a glass of water. Now, why does that work? Because your body requires in order to swallow water, you have to use your throat muscles and, you know, it takes different parts of your body to, to swallow water and water is good for you. It's hydrating. It act, it, it awakens the brain. And so it's a disruption. So think about energy being disrupted. You interfere with that anxious anxiety energy when we can put into play some of these things. Now, does this heal your trauma for life? Absolutely not. Like breathing is not something that's ever going to go away as an activity to calm me down or calm somebody else down in an activated state. However, it's a great tool to have in the toolbox when you need it. Like, wow, this didn't go like I was expecting. I need to like, I need to take a few breaths and clear my mind. And that's exactly what happens. It's like clearing your mind. So I hope that you will use that, practice it and see if that's a possible thing that works for you. Everybody has different things that work for them. Nothing works for every, everyone. So we have to find the tools that work for us and keep them in our toolbox. This, this is important. ACEs are so common. Remember, two thirds of the population have at least one ACE. And so that means a trauma, a traumatic experience has happened to them in childhood. So knowing your story is the first step to changing it. Because what happens psychologically is when unconscious traumas get stuck in our body, we end up replaying them because we can't get them out because they don't make sense. They're not part of our story. When we're able to make them part of our story, it's like giving them a pathway out of our body and onto a piece of paper, onto a, onto a painting, into a sculpture whatever, when we're able to take our trauma and turn it into something inspiring for ourselves and get it out of our body and understand it, that's when healing can and does begin. So how do we get access to our unconscious mind? That's a really, really important question. And it's a big, it's, it's big and it's hard. So we start with knowing that we have an unconscious mind and we can use guided mindfulness with a trained practitioner. We can use hypnotherapy with a trained professional, not someone who's gone to a weekend workshop. I'm talking about find out, ask questions. When you're trying to heal your trauma, you are allowed to make sure that the person that you work with has the experience the depth of experience needed to help you go deep because that's what has to happen in order to heal trauma. And if you have somebody who can't go deep, then it's going to make it very difficult for you to go deep on your own as well. 
So EMDR is a method of working with people who have experienced extreme trauma, particularly a lot of times PTSD. Again, trained professional, not a weekend road warrior training. It has to be somebody who knows the theoretical foundation of EMDR as well as how to practice EMDR effectively. So, so one of the ways we know how, how we actually access our unconscious mind is by paying attention to our core language, by paying attention to the things that we say that keep coming up for us that are repeated and ask ourselves questions about that because that is the perfect window into our own mind of things that may or may not have happened to us and how we want to find out more about that. We can ask historians in our family of our parents, our grandparents, our aunts, our uncles, other people who may know things about our life when we were a baby, and that's helpful. So you don't have to know every single detail of every single thing, because the amazing thing about our body is that the body informs the mind and the mind informs the body. So if something's going on in your body and you're willing to sit with it long enough to figure out what that is, you will find out. So it's just a matter of being willing to explore and open to the answers. And then healing, that's what healing is. And it's its a positive thing, even though it's terrifying to start, to take those first steps. Remembering resilience. I just, I want everybody to appreciate and remember that resilience is real and relationships make it happen. So even though people have trauma and can feel highly isolated and alone, the most powerful protective factor in the life histories of resilient children was the presence of one caring adult in the child's life. Life, Most powerfully, a parent, but often a mentor or a surrogate parent. So most people don't go through life without a loving, caring adult. It may not be their parent and they still may have a high A score, but that one loving, caring, attuned individual that we've talked about in every class has a very powerful impact on resilience in the lifespan of a person. Okay, let's start to wrap it up. The truth is that adverse childhood experiences do impact the entire trajectory of a person's life. And we're going to learn in future classes, the trajectory of the next generation's lives. We have the power to build resilient children, families, and communities by preventing ACEs in the first place, or at least slowing them down. So we need to start to systemically put into place those things that counteract trauma. And we can do that. We know how to do that. We're starting to do that just by understanding trauma and its impact on our mental and physical health, because I think that's a wrap. So remember, ACEs are preventable when we focus on safe, consistent, predictable, and nurturing relationships.
in children and adolescents and adults. We build in access points for children, adolescents and adults to get help needed to heal from abuse and trauma. So we can do this. And I look forward to seeing you in class three. Remember, go back and do the ACEs, the ACE screening, as well as the resilience adult survey. Have fun. 